Um, we're in Mark chapter 3 today. You can turn there um, as we continue our Gospel of Mark series. Um, we are um, in a part of Mark's Gospel. It's a little bit of a transition. Uh, let me bring you back up to speed. Um, I want to kind of re rehearse and remind you of, of, of what Mark's is about as we go. Um, most New Testament scholars, many New Testament scholars believe that Mark was the earliest gospel um, that was written and that it was kind of the forerunner of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, evidence seems to indicate that Mark was probably the earliest. Um, and so it's this very early first century uh, narrative, uh, biography narrative about Jesus written by this guy named Mark, who most people believe was John Mark in the New Testament. We don't know a ton about Mark. Uh, what we do know, what the text seems to indicate, is that he was the Jewish son of a follower of Jesus named Mary, not like the mother Mary, uh, but another Mary. Uh, Mary was a common name in the biblical times, kind of like, you know, Ashley. I said this morning, like 10% of ladies born who are now 30 to 40 years old, I think, are named Ashley. And so Mary was a common name in that day. And so um, John Mark's mother was Mary. Again, church tradition says that this was one of the homes where the early church in Jerusalem first met. And so Mark was exposed to the gospel very early. Um, he writes his story from the perspective of the apostle Peter. And so he kind of served as this narrator of, of Peter. Um, later in his life, he becomes an assistant to Paul and Barnabas, two big dogs in the early church, you know, church planter Paul, and he goes on the very first missionary journey uh, that Paul embarked on to plant churches and preach the gospel. He is a part of this mission team, and then in the middle of the mission trip, for whatever reason, he bails. He deserts the missionary team, and it causes kind of a rift between Paul and Barnabas, and when Paul gets ready to go on his second missionary journey, Barnabas is like, we're going to bring Mark, and Paul's like, the guy can't be trusted. He's not going. If he goes, you're not going. Like, that's Paul's personality, seems like. And so they parted their ways. And again, God was working through all that to plant churches in different areas. Uh, about a decade later, there's a reconciliation that takes place. And Paul shows the grace that he had been given. And there's this reconciliation that takes place. And Mark is given this second chance. Um, he's a person in need of second chances. Church tradition tells us that Mark later takes the gospel into the area that we know now as Egypt. And he becomes a pastor of a very influential church there in Alexandria. And so that's Mark. Um, that's the, the gospel that he's writing. His uh, gospel account is all about beginnings. He says that in the very first verse. You may remember. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. That what Mark is writing is a good news announcement concerning who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. His entire gospel is written about that perspective. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to be one of his disciples? In Mark, Jesus is the center of attention. He's the focus. He's the, the key to the entire narrative. And we are called uh, to turn from our way of living. We call that repentance, to turn from our way of living and be a part of his kingdom. We call that believing, faith, to turn and believe. That was the message of Jesus when he came preaching the kingdom of God. And I said early on, this idea of kingdom is wherever, wherever God rules and reigns. That's his kingdom. We live under his rule and his reign. We live as one of his 
disciples. All throughout Mark's gospel, we're going to break this down in a moment. All throughout Mark's gospel in the narrative, multitudes of people are drawn to Jesus. Multitudes, crowds of people are drawn to Jesus. But only a few are called to be his disciples. Crowds are drawn and attracted to Jesus, but only a few are called to be disciples. And so through all all of Mark's gospel, there's this contrast between the many, the crowd, and the few, the disciples. And we see that really played out in today's text. So uh, Mark gives us, and again, it's kind of a transition section of Mark's gospel, uh, but he he talks first of all about the many. We're in chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and here we go, and a great crowd followed. And then there's this list of cities. Um, Some of these cities are predominantly Jewish cities. Some of them are Gentile cities. Some of them are a mix, both Jew and Gentile, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, um, Idume and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard, listen to this, heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So again, there's this crowd of people. When we last left Jesus last week, Uh, these two groups of people, the Pharisees, the religious, and the Herodians, which I told you last week were uh, predominantly a political group that were loyal to Herod. Okay, so Pharisees that were anticipating God's kingdom to come to overthrow the Romans, tag team with the Herodians who are pro-Rome, who are trying to move the Roman agenda forward. These two groups, these opposite groups, they come together. They're an unlikely tag team then they're plotting to kill Jesus. And so there's this like battery of tests that happens in the previous section that Jesus now, he intentionally withdraws with his disciples to one of these more remote areas um, around the sea. But this ethnically diverse crowd of people from extensive geographical locations, if you do the kind of the tracing in first century uh, literature, This is like a 120-mile radius of people. Like, can you imagine 120 miles um, in that day and age? It's not like they could, you know, jump in their car and travel 120 miles. 120 miles of walking or riding some kind of animal to get to Jesus. 120-mile circle radius of people flock to Jesus. Mark said, great crowds gather around him to the point that the disciples have to find this small boat to kind of serve as a a mobile um, pulpit just so he's not crushed by the crowd. Jesus is like, if I need to step into the boat to keep from being crushed, we need to make this happen. So the fame of Jesus is far-reaching and is all-encompassing, all types of people. Now, I don't want you to think when we read things like this and talk about these crowds surrounding Jesus, like we don't need to think in terms of like celebrity stardom, right? Um, you read about celebrities, they're like, um, you know, I can't go outside without being jostled by the crowds or, you know, harassed by the paparazzi. Like, 
that's not the type of like celebrity stardom we're talking about with Jesus. And we're not talking about like some type of celebrity crush fan base, like some fandom group like we have today, right? There's celebrities and their followers have nicknames, right? You know this? Like the believers. You know who the believers are? These are fans of Justin Bieber, okay? Um, how about, I'll go, I'll go old school for some of you, deadheads. Got some deadheads out there. Uh, do we have any Swifties in the house? <laughs> I cracked you up, Ash? <laughs> when Ash thinks a joke is funny, she repeats the joke. <laughs> like early in our marriage, you know, we'd be watching a funny movie or a funny show, and she would repeat whatever funny was said. I'm like, every time I miss the next line of the show. Because you're repeating what they just said. I heard it. You don't have to repeat it. Swifties got her. That's Taylor Swift fans. Reagan's a Swiftie. Potterheads. Some Potterheads out there. My oldest daughter, Kaylee, she's a Potterhead. That's Harry Potter fans. Trekkies. I know there's some Trekkies in the house. Uh, now, what I, from what I hear last night, I was watching the big event, but there was another sporting big sporting event that was on, I guess, at the same time. So some of you out there may be some Hulkamaniacs. I guess WrestleMania happened last night. I didn't even know until the basketball game was over. I saw a friend that was uh, at WrestleMania. Um, so some Hulkamaniacs, I guess um, one of the wrestlers is like 90, came back and wrestled from what I hear. Um, Jesus is not just a celebrity. Now we are tempted we're tempted in everyday life to make him kind of a celebrity in our lives. But he's more than as a celebrity. And sometimes Christian, the word Christian kind of becomes this like title of fandom. That I identify with a Jesus movement of some sort. Jesus is full of compassion for these crowds. He's not just a celebrity that needs to be removed or trying to withdraw from, from people. He is mag people are magnetically drawn to Jesus. But what the text tells us, they are primarily drawn to Jesus because of, Mark says, what he was doing. What he was doing. Because he, again, Mark's language, healed so many they were drawn to him. Now, think about, this is an, an era of primitive medicine. It's not like there was surgeries and chemotherapy and radiation and doctors and places of care and all those types of things that we have today. This was a very primitive medicine day and age. And if you've got certain diseases um, that are treatable in modern times, you're, I mean, you are destined to die. There's no treatment for them. And so obviously, people are flocking to Jesus, bringing those who have diseases, have sickness, and they are coming to Jesus for healing. As a matter of fact, the text says it reaches the point that the people are so desperate for healing that they just want to touch him. That they believe if they can just touch Jesus, they will be healed. There's that significant story in the New Testament that we'll get to later. Where this, Remember the lady that was, had the disease for 12 years and she's fighting the crowd? She's like, if I could just get a hold of the fringe of his garment, I'll be healed. And so this is the type of kind of mad mania that is surrounding Jesus. They are in search of healing. That he is a miracle worker. Now let me be really quick to say here. 
what this tells us about Jesus, that he touches those that, in their tradition, he should not touch, the unclean, that he is willing to be touched by all the wrong people. Right? We've talked about this in Mark's gospel. Everybody that was forbidden as unclean or sickly or poor, that these people are not the people that a religious rabbi should be engaged with, much less in physical contact with, that they would be considered the unclean. And for a clean to touch an unclean makes the clean unclean in Jewish tradition. But with Jesus, the clean touches the unclean and the unclean becomes clean. The holy touches the unholy and the unholy becomes holy. And so Jesus is constantly in contact with lepers and he's willing to be touched by those who are diseased and sick because he brings healing and redemption and wholeness. So Jesus is not repulsed or turned away by this desperate crowd who is there for the wrong reasons, right? He is full of compassion and he is drawn to them. But here is the problem with the crowd. Here's the problem with the many. They don't fully grasp who Jesus is. They're unaware of his, his sacrificial intent, his sacrificial mission. They are drawn to Jesus so that their needs might be met. Not uncommon in our day and age. To be drawn to Jesus simply because of what he can do for me, get for me. I know we live in the South and in the Bible Belt, but sometimes I'm intrigued by um, political commercials on TV of certain candidates that will kind of use in their commercial, this person's a whatever, a Christian or a member of this church or uh, whatever language they use. Why? Because they have a need to connect with a certain audience, right, that they're trying to say, vote for me. It is kind of a tagline to say, I'm this type of person. Vote for me. I need a need that's met. We all are guilty of that, right? Of coming to Jesus for our own needs, our own selfish desires to be met. They're in search of healing, and Jesus is a miracle worker. The only, only entity in this text that gets it right, again, are the demons. The demons correctly identify who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God. As a matter of fact, the text says they fell before him. They fall before him. And the language here in the original language is the idea of an inferior being that is, that is fully, that is laying and falling fully prostrate on the ground before a superior being. Matter of fact, Jesus orders them to be quiet for a handful of reasons, but one of them is because Jesus does not want to receive worship or homage from a demon. So he's like, you be quiet. Holy Son of God. They get it right. He's the Son of God. And Jesus tells them to be quiet. He's not going to be worshipped by a demon. Now, I want to issue a pretty strong warning here. It is possible to hang around Jesus' people. It is possible to hang around Jesus' stuff and not know Jesus. It is possible to spend your life around the people of Jesus, around the stuff of Jesus, the things of Jesus, and not know him. It is possible to experience Jesus working 
in certain ways and not know Jesus. It is possible to participate in ministry, to serve, to sing, to play, to lead, to give, to attend church, to be in a small group. It is possible to participate in Jesus' stuff, Jesus' ministry, and not know Jesus. A question that we must constantly be drawn to is like, why am I seeking him? Why am I going after him? Why am I showing up? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? Why am I drawn toward Jesus? There's this harrowing verse in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount uh, where Jesus uses this language. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen to what Jesus says here. On that day, many, many, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. I mean, those are some sobering words, some sobering thoughts. I mean, these are doing mighty works, casting out demons, doing great things for Jesus, right? And not knowing Jesus. And that's what we see in the crowd over and over and over. Crowds versus disciples, the many versus the few. And then Mark shifts his focus from the crowd to the few. Look in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. And then here's our list. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, uh, the brother of James, to whom he gave uh, the name Sons of Thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we have this shift from the many to the few. Very important. We don't have time to chase this. But it's very important that there are 12 disciples. Uh, there were how many tribes of Israel in the Old Testament? Remember? 12 tribes came from the sons of Jacob of Israel. Uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Now there's 12 disciples. Again, there's this shift that's taking place in God's redemptive story. There's a restoration of God's people that is happening, a fulfillment of God's promises, a new beginning is unfolding. And this is happening with 12 people, right? 12 disciples that are kind of the fulfillment, the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then this important, important insight on what it means to be a disciple in these texts are given to us. Let's kind of retrace this. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so look again, 13. He went up to the mountain and then look at the language here. He called to him those whom he desired. And then what happened to those who were called and desired by Jesus? They came to him. So we, we see disciples are called by Jesus. They're called by Jesus. Now, if you want to go back and re-listen to it, and you missed it earlier in the series, when I talked about the, the section where 
uh, Jesus calls the four fishermen. Um, we talked about what it meant to be called by a rabbi in that day or to follow a rabbi. And I, I said on that Sunday uh, that rabbis in the first century were not going out and selecting disciples or students, that a student would set his sights on a rabbi and say, I want to follow that rabbi. I want to learn from that rabbi. And then the student would be, his first requirement would be to memorize the entire Torah right out of the gate, okay? Go memorize Genesis through Deuteronomy and then come back. And so they would memorize that and then they would go through this crazy process of narrowing down and then the rabbi would just select. I want these three and you 25 can go home. Hope the Torah does you some good, right? And then that, that student would give themselves to that rabbi, following in their path, learning from them, living life for them, to continue the teachings of that rabbi. Jesus flips that entire process on its head. He was different than any of the common rabbis. He calls. They come. He is the rabbi choosing the students. He initiates the relationship. He calls, the scripture says, those whom he desires, and they respond. They come to him. And so we've seen it in the text that he called four fishermen. He called Matthew, the tax collector, and now he calls the 12 disciples. And let's pause to say Jesus is still calling people to follow him today. That's his call. Come follow me. Follow me. Be my disciples. Now, again, we, we tend to make this about the theology and how does all this work together, the call and the response and all those things. Uh, but it's very important to remember in this text that it's less about this kind of theological tension of the dynamic of being called and responding. And it's more about recognizing the call of God is from God, is the salvation is from God from start to completion. He selects and he calls disciples. Here's what that means for us. We're not doing Jesus a favor by following him. You get that? We're not doing Jesus a favor by following him. He calls us and we respond. He desires, he calls, we follow. One of those old um, songs that you'd sing that repeats itself over and over, which it was like, oh, that's modern worship. But one of the songs that you sing that repeats itself a lot and a lot, remember this? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And I always want to stop in that song and be like, so what? I've decided to follow Jesus, so what? That doesn't matter. We love him because he first loved us. We respond to his call. Here's what grace says. Grace says he pursues us, right? He comes after us. It wasn't like I had a dawning moment where I decided to follow Jesus and make it all about me. It's like, no, I follow because he pursued me. He came after me with his grace and his redemption, his wholeness and his healing. He pursued me. The so what of that song is I've been pursued by him. It's about him. It's all about him. Disciples are called to follow Jesus. The next thing we see about disciples in this text, uh, 14 and 15, let's revisit that. He appointed 12 whom he called apostles so that they might, look at the process here, so that they, that's purpose statement, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Disciples not only are called by Jesus, disciples are on mission with Jesus. We're on mission with Jesus. We have a purpose. He gives us two purposes here. 
One, most important, you're called to be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. He called so that they might be with Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus, your number one priority as a follower is to be with Jesus, to be with him, to live life with the rabbi. Discipleship, this is an important statement, discipleship is far more, it's one of those church words we use, discipleship is far more about the who than it is about the what. We love to make it about the what because we can calculate that, measure it, and I took this class and I know these things, I read these books, I memorized this, I must be a disciple because here's my list of things I, I did. And that is a natural progression of learning to know Jesus is engaging those things. But at the end of the, the day, you can do all that Jesus stuff and not know him. Who, knowing Jesus, is the most important component of discipleship. Do I know him? To be with him, to be his disciples, to be with him. You see, being with Jesus is not about proximity. It's not the disciples were like, oh, they lived life with Jesus, even though they did. But it is about living our lives under his rule and reign, in his kingdom. His agenda replaces my agenda. He leads. I follow. He shapes my life. I am spending time with Jesus. We read the Paul passage at the beginning. Paul said that my aim in life is to know him, to know him, to know Jesus, to be with Jesus. And then there's this other idea of a discipleship of being on mission with Jesus, to be with Jesus and to then to be sent by Jesus, to be sent by him. The called, the disciple, the called becomes part of the mission, becomes part of the purpose. And then notice how Jesus kind of broke it down here in 14 and 15. He names two things specifically. He says, you are sent to, one, proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel, this idea means to just announce the good news of the kingdom, to proclaim who Jesus is, to engage people with the gospel of Christ. So we have to ask ourselves as disciples, how regularly am I investing in people, getting to know them, breaking down their story, understanding who they are, to be able to talk to them about Jesus? Am I, we've talked about this for a few weeks now, am I being intentional in my relationships, have Hey, let's go grab coffee. Let's have lunch together. Let's have a conversation. Let's have, come over to my house for dinner. Uh, to be able to talk to people about the good news of the kingdom. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have some methodology of here's the seven steps I'm going to take people so they understand what it means to be a Christian. It is engaging people where they are in life and announcing the good news. Here's what Jesus has done for me. Here's how Jesus has changed my life. Announcing the good news, the good news announcement about who Jesus is. And then Jesus uses this language that kind of makes us a little, what? All right? He sends these apostles out to basically cast out demons, is the language he used. Let me tell you the big picture of what he's saying here. The idea is to penetrate the darkness with the light. Am I penetrating the darkness with the light? And here he uses a specific example to act in his name and with his authority. So just the idea of demons here in this text, 
uh, to go out and to, um, to cast out demons, basically. The idea of demons represents everything that's associated with the brokenness, with the darkness. So the idea is that as followers of Jesus, as disciples, that we step into the dark spaces with the light. Now, this breaks down a lot of ways. That means that in the dark crevices of my heart, in those dark struggles in my own heart and soul, I step into those spaces with the light of the gospel. That those areas, here's where we struggle with the darkness and the brokenness. The bitterness and the anger that resides deep in my heart. The unforgiveness, the lust, the mental challenges, struggles that I might go through, the, the, you know, the doubts and the insecurities. I mean, those are the dark corners of our hearts and souls. And the idea here is to step into those dark spaces with the light of the gospel of Christ, that his desire is to liberate and set you free from those broken and dark corners of your own heart and soul. It also means that I'm seeking to step into the darkness with the light of the gospel in, in the culture where Christ has placed me. That there are dark corners of the culture in which we live, dark spaces that seem to be more and more prominent where we are called to penetrate the darkness with the light. Not in this kind of aggressive, get on your nerves kind of way, but in a way that seeks to proclaim the truth amid the darkness in a way that points people to Christ. So it, as a church, being part of being in our city and for our city is to identify places in the community where God has placed us where there is brokenness. And to say, how do we step into that space with the light of the gospel? How do we join forces with other organizations that are seeking to proclaim the light in a dark world? How do we join arm in arm with them to say, we're on mission together. To penetrate the darkness with the light. To be light vocally in our behavior, in our actions, the way we love people. Penetrating the darkness with the light. You have been sent on a mission from Christ to announce the gospel, to penetrate the darkness with the light of the good news of Christ. Disciples on mission with Jesus. And then the other thing I would say about disciples from this text, disciples are transformed by Jesus, aren't they? They are being transformed by Jesus. So Mark lists the disciples for us. Most of them we know very little about other than just a few mentions in the New Testament here and there. The ones we do know more about remind us of the type of people that Jesus calls to follow him and continue his mission. Like, think about this list. First name on the list, Simon, Peter. Again, this is Mark written from Peter's perspective. You know, you think about Simon, you know, he's this like rough around the edges, uh, fisherman turned apostle, that Jesus renames Peter, which means the rock. And then you read the story of Peter in the Gospels, and Peter is anything but a rock during the three years he spends with Jesus, culminating in the denial. He denies Jesus on the most crucial night of his life. That's the first name on the list, Simon. That's the first guy on the list. And then he goes to James and John, who, who are nicknamed the sons of thunder. Like, what does that tell us? Well, we know for sure these guys had some quick tempers. Sons of thunder. On at least one occasion, they corner Jesus and volunteer 
to call down fire from heaven and destroy this unhospitable village of Samaritans. They're like, we don't want Jesus here. And James and John are like, Jesus, come here. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and to annihilate them? Sons of thunder, right? That's why they have the nickname, sons of thunder. When you read about James and John, their motives for following Jesus are questionable at best because they're often consumed with, where are we going to be in the kingdom? Are we going to get to sit on your right hand and left hand? Like, what does that tell you about their agenda for following Jesus? These are the first three. This is the inner circle of disciples. Peter, James, and John, they got to go with Jesus places no other disciples went. They were on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. They were at certain healings where Jesus raised people from the dead, where other disciples were not even allowed to enter. This is the inner circle. Peter, James, John, the only ones with nicknames in the list. Inner circle, spending time with Jesus, present for some of the most astonishing moments of his life, and broken people. The rest of this list, we don't know a ton about them. Andrew, who seems to always be living in the shadow of his brother, Simon, another fisherman. Philip, a few things we read about Philip, he seems to be kind of this pragmatic bean counter who followed protocol, who's a rules follower, and yet he kind of had this cynical attitude. He had to be like an accountant or something. We have Bartholomew. I mean, just the name alone, right? Bartholomew. The little we know about Bart, he is a, a seeker from a very small kind of hick town in that region. He's brought to Jesus by his friend Philip. Matthew, who's also Levi in the text, we, we've already did a whole message about him. He was a tax collector. He was hated, despised, a traitor, hated by both the Jews and the Romans because the Romans did not like traitors. So even though he was a kind of this tool used by the Romans to get money from the Jewish people, hated by the Jews, right, probably wealthy because he stole and took advantage of people, called to follow Jesus. Again, go back, listen to the message on Matthew. Thomas, who's most known by a nickname also in the Gospels, Thomas the Doubter, right? Who doubts in the end? Poor James, the other James in the text. They have to identify him as the son of Alphaeus. You know there's other places in church tradition where the nickname of James is that he was called, ready for it, the lesser. The lesser. Like, how would you like that nickname? Here's James, the lesser, right? Like, call me the greater, but let's not go with lesser. The name Thaddeus basically means mama's boy. That's Thaddeus, right? Simon the Zealot. I mentioned Simon a couple weeks ago. A zealot was this rebellious fanatic that was looking to overthrow the Romans by any means necessary. They were violent. They were aggressive. They were murderers. They were insurrectionists. They were fanatics. Follow me, Jesus says. I mean, Judas Iscariot, for crying out loud. The betrayer makes the list. Who is this ragtag group of misfits that Jesus calls? They're not first-round draft choices. And yet this is the group that Jesus selects to continue his mission. The future of the Jesus movement rests on this motley crew. That's why that piece of the puzzle 
that Jesus says, you will go in my name and you will go in my authority is so important. Because it wasn't about them. It was about the name and the authority of Jesus. There's a couple of texts in Acts that I find fascinating. One, uh, a few of the disciples are dragged before the religious leaders, and they're having this conversation about the disciples, and they use this language. Um, these guys are basically uneducated and common men, but they have been with Jesus. Uncommon, uneducated men common and uneducated men, but they have been with Jesus. Acts 17 says that the disciples were men who turned the world upside down. Why? Because of their giftedness? Because Jesus recruited the best, right? Because he had the right marketing strategy? Because all the disciples were kind of these A-level, right, um, high-level speakers that could draw thousands of people in? No, they were the opposite of that in every way. The disciples were people that were called by Jesus for a specific purpose, to be with him and to be sent by him with the gospel and the authority of Jesus. They were called, they were equipped, they were sent. The ones he calls, he transforms to fulfill his mission. It was not about them. They were ordinary people transformed by Jesus. Here's what that means. Who qualifies? Who qualifies to be a disciple? Will you ever stick your foot in your mouth when you should not? Welcome. You ever say the wrong thing at the wrong time? You ever deny him with your words or your actions? Are you quick-tempered? Are you a skeptic? Are you constantly living in the shadow of someone else? Are you a grade A level sinner? Despised, hated? Are you a doubter? Are you a nobody? Are you a political zealot that just spends a little bit too much time watching Fox News? Are you from some hick town? Are you consumed with details? Blue collar? Broke, broken, wounded, here's what I am telling you. We are all gloriously unqualified. And that's why the gospel is good news. Because these are the types of people that Jesus calls to be his disciples. People like you, people like me, sinners in need of rescue and transformation. I love that the church of Jesus is founded on the unnamed and the unknown and the unqualified. Not one of these disciples came from the religious establishment of his day. They were common people. And outside of the big three, Peter, James, and John, and Judas Iscariot, for all the wrong reasons, most of these disciples are never even mentioned again in Mark's story. You know why? Jesus is the center of the story. It's all about him. And it still is all about him. All about him. It's not about us. We're not the center of this story as desperately as we want to be at times. It is all about him. 
It is about the broken following the unbroken. It is about the unqualified following the qualified. It is about the unholy following the holy. He steps into every gap where we fall short. We follow him because he is worth following. He is worth pursuing. So here's the key question for this entire message today. Am I a disciple? Am I a true disciple? Or am I just part of the crowd? Am I a part of the many? I do Jesus stuff. I refer to Jesus. I hang around his people some. Or am I a disciple? Jesus is calling disciples today. And he's not looking. He's not looking for all, for those who have it all together. He's not looking for those who have all the answers. He's not looking for those who can cross their moral T's and dot their ethical I's. He's calling sinners. And his invitation is this. Take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. Live under my rule and reign, Jesus is saying. Live life on mission, not in your own strength, but in the strength and the authority of the one who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. You go, Jesus says, under my authority, under my name. Our call is simply to follow Jesus. Let me apply this. And I want to especially apply this to our men. Because here's what I know about men. I've been reminded of this recently. Here's what I know. Um, most of us, if not all of us, are tired at some level. We are. Um, we're tired physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, morally, financially, spiritually. Because life often leaves us with expectations that are exhausting. Be the best dad, husband, right? Provider, leader, do everything you're supposed to do at home to lead your family toward God, be involved in your church, work hard, right? Remain true and pure. And it's a battlefield. Take your kids to the ball game, hang out with them all day Saturday, watch them play. Like these are the front lines. And for men, it gets tiring because of these kind of high expectations. And ladies, I'm not leaving you out of this, but I just feel like we need to have this conversation about disciples, men being disciples. You see, I, I think and believe that most men feel that something just isn't quite right about their lives. Life's not turned out quite like you expected, right? You feel like maybe I've spent my life pursuing the wrong goals and no one really cares. And here I am. You try and do the right thing, but you find yourself feeling defeated and ashamed and struggling with the same old habits and hang-ups again and again. Not much joy in life. And you're searching and you're not sure where to find the answers, but you have to put on the face. You have to man up. And here's what I want you to hear from me. Jesus is worth pursuing. And he is qualified where you are not. And he does not fall short where you feel like you fall short. 
and I want you to hear from me. He is worth pursuing. His mission and purpose are worth giving your life to. And Jesus invites you, follow me. And it's not, he's not just asking you to conform to some set of feel good about yourself when you succeed and feel terrible about yourself when you fail set of values and rules. It's all about grace. And he says, follow me. And I think that the reason that we have an entire generation, particularly of younger men, uh, kind of up to my age, that are consumed with like sitting on the couch and trying to win battles on the PS4 is because we've, we've missed this bigger mission in life. We're beat up and tired, and that gives us some way to win. And your calling is higher than that. It's a call to be a part of his kingdom, to surrender to his rule and reign and live in his power and authority, proclaiming the good news and penetrating the darkness. And I want to tell you, following Jesus is where we find meaning and hope and fulfillment and joy and rest. I'm not beating you up. I care about you. I love you. What I'm saying to you is Jesus invites you. Come to me, he says. Those who are weary, come. Those who are burdened, trying to meet expectations. Come, he said. Come to me and find rest for your soul. And he's telling you that. He's speaking that to not just our wives and ladies and girls and young people, men. He is offering the invitation to you Come to me. You're you're tired and you're weary and you feel like you're falling short and you don't feel like you're not sure if you're doing what you are carved out to do and you're unsure that you're measuring up and you have a lot of expectations that you don't feel like you're meeting and you feel like you're ready to either throw in the towel or walk away or give up or give your attention to something you should not. And he says, come, come to me. Come to me. You're weary and you're burdened. Come to me and find rest for your soul. Uneducated, common, struggling, underqualified, good. That's good news. You can be a disciple and you can watch him turn your world upside down. He's calling. He's equipping. He's sending disciples to continue what he began. Final words of Jesus before he goes back to the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. Go. Therefore, go, therefore, 
and make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's our promise. Behold, Jesus says, the one with all authority on heaven and and on earth. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you, he says. You're not doing this alone. Come to me. Find rest for your soul in me and all the authority and power and strength and enabling that you knew that you need has been given to you through me. You just follow me. Continue what he began. Let's bow our heads for prayer.